I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, the hidden cost of fines. I grew up going to my local public library. My parents were both big readers. This is Peter Bromberg. He remembers biking on his own as a kid to find his next reading adventure. The library was his childhood happy place. So his ears perked up when, toward the end of college, a friend mentioned he was going for a master's of library science. I thought, oh my gosh, like I love libraries. I love doing research. I love helping people. And I could really envision myself spending my life helping people in libraries. What Bromberg didn't realize then was that many people don't have the same warm, fuzzy feelings about libraries. But that didn't come into focus for him until he was well into his library career. I was in Atlanta, Georgia for a conference and taking a, a lift from the airport to the hotel. And my uh, my driver said, oh, um, and her name was Chandria. She was, I'd ma- imagine, probably like early 40s, African-American woman. Um, said, oh my gosh, you know, I, I love the library. My, my siblings and I, we grew up um, walking distance to this branch of the Atlanta Fulton Library and we were there all the time and we loved it. And then there was a pause and she said, but I have kids and we don't go to the library. And I said, oh, well, why is that? And she said, well, those deadlines that you have on getting the books back in time, you know, it's like an extra credit card bill at the end of the, every month that I can't pay. Now that really hit me, like here's someone who is a mom, who's trying to raise kids, who's driving a lift, you know, try, trying to make some money. And, and here she is, someone who grew up going to the library with her own siblings and loved it and felt that she was unable to take her kids to the library because uh, of what she called that extra credit card bill at the end of every month because of the, the fines, right? And so I, I, I always thought, oh, if I, if I am ever in the position to affect some change in that, it's something that I would do. And uh, from 2016 through 2021, I was the executive director of the Salt Lake City Public Library System in Salt Lake City, Utah. Where he got rid of late fines. Many libraries have, actually. Which seems strange, right? Because if there's no punishment for late returns, who is going to bother bringing books back on time? Fines are ubiquitous in our society. It is the default way we think to punish bad behavior. And if something's really bad, we'll lock you up too. Deterrence is the goal, of course. But the thing with fines is, what's expensive to you might be just pocket change to me. Still, the overdue book or speeding ticket costs exactly the same for both of us. And as a society, we seem to have decided that's just fine. Well, this season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. And today's episode was inspired by a listener who heard us talking about traffic stops earlier in the season and asked us to look deeper into this assumption that fines are the best way to get the behavior we want. So we did. We started noticing all the places fines exist. They're everywhere in our criminal justice system, which has some serious implications. And they're common in our personal circles, too. Like, did you ever have a swear jar? Or did your parents dock your allowance for breaking curfew? And of course, there are library fines. We've all paid those. But that's one place where fines are rapidly disappearing in our society. So let's start there. It happened a lot quicker than I thought it would. Peter Bromberg knew that he wanted to get rid of fines when he took over at the Salt Lake City Public Library in late 2016. But he figured it would take some persuading to get his bosses, the city council, on board. So in meetings about the budget during his first few months on the job, he says he'd just kind of sneak it in, Columbo style. You know, the show Columbo with Peter Falk, right, where at the end, you know, he talked to, to someone and he'd walk out the door and say, you know, there's just one more thing. And, and so I was sort of doing that in these conversations 
where I'd say, you know, there's just one more thing. I, I have this idea about, you know, fines, and I would, I would do maybe like two, three, five minutes of why I thought fines were problematic. And I really was taking the approach of planting some seeds that I thought, you know, we could follow up on and grow and address this at a later time. But the arguments were landing pretty well. And when it came time for the city council to approve the budget? The chair of the city council at that time said, you've been talking about this fine-free stuff to everyone, and we all agree it's a great idea. And we think there's, why wait, let's do it now. We think you should go revise your budget. This was in April. <laughs> and uh, we actually ended up having to like implement it relatively quickly. <laughs> but you know, that, that was a good problem to have. When the new fiscal year kicked in three months later, July 2017, the Salt Lake City Public Library eliminated late fines, and they wiped the slate clean of past fines for all patrons. We immediately saw a jump in numbers of people coming back and uh, signing up for cards, and many, many people telling us, I'm glad I can come back to the library. One story stands out. It's an echo of that Lyft driver he'd met in Atlanta. This person had had said, you know, getting rid of fines really changed the way we use the library. She said that frequent visits wouldn't have been possible in the era of late late fees. And she was actually at the library with her young daughter picking up books when she offered this comment. She said, I'm a single mom and I simply couldn't afford to come to the library if there were still late fees. But this has taken so much stress off of me. I'm not afraid to take books out anymore. Coming to the city library is such a pleasure. Were you at all worried though that that you would end up having people just not return books on time. Like, if there's no penalty, why wouldn't people just keep them as long as they want? And, you know, that doesn't serve anybody. Well, there's an assumption baked into that question of saying, if we're not penalizing people, why would they return them at all? Well, because most people, most of the time, do the right thing. And most people, most of the time, recognize that this is part of a social contract, that I'm checking this out, there's an agreement that this is due in a couple weeks, And someone else may be waiting for it, so I will return it on time. And the other reason I wasn't worried, again, is because there was so much research that showed that libraries that uh, implemented Find Free didn't have a problem with getting books back on time. This is going to sound counterintuitive, but before we went Find Free, at any time, if you looked at all of the books that were checked out, about 10% of them were in a late status. After we went Find Free... 3.4% of them were in a late status. So many fewer books were coming back late. And, and, you know, what we saw, well, one of the things I I should mention also before I I made the official recommendation to go find free, one of the things that I looked at statistically in Salt Lake City was if you looked at cards that were blocked because of fines that had accumulated, 34% of those blocked cards were in generally lower income zip codes on the west side of Salt Lake City, even though um, the cards in those zip codes only made up 14% of all of our cardholders. So in other words, it was hitting the people in, in lower income areas three times harder, right? So the idea that, a, that, a, that the fine is going to lead someone to bring material back, well, again, also on the west side where there was lower income, we had very we, we had um, public transportation that's not nearly as good. So it's harder to get to the library, right? Um, clearly, they would return the books on time if they could, right? So there's something else getting in the way. It's not a fair solution, and it's not an effective solution. They also started renewing books automatically. If no one else is waiting for it, instead of it then coming due, you get an automated email that says, Like this book was due, because no one is waiting for it, we will automatically renew it for you. Because that makes sense, right? Like why force someone to return an item that they're not done with if no one else is waiting for it? We actually like made the system much more efficient as well as a great great return on investment because circulation went up about 11%. Borrowers went up 11%. New card registrations went up about 3.5%. But also, all of those have been trending downward. So when I say they went up, if we had done nothing, they would have continued to trend downward, most likely. We didn't just stop the downward trend. We reversed it. But But before, when you were charging fines, you were actually collecting money that could go towards your budget. So was that a big hit for you as a library? It was a relatively small hit, and, and the numbers are going to be different at every library, but for, for us, it was about 0.3% of our budget. Now, I should also distinguish between charging people for lost or damaged materials and fines. So we eliminated late fees, which is punitive and, and ineffective. 
we continued, as many libraries do, to charge for a damaged or a lost item. Oh, so, um, so I can't keep the book forever. It's not just a free cannot, book. As long as I no. bring it back, then I don't have to pay a late <laughs> fee. But if I don't ever bring it back, what, you're going to bill me for it somehow? You're, you'll get billed for the book. That's correct. And even in those cases, if someone comes in and, and you know, negotiates, like we, we can often negotiate how much that might cost, but also a payment plan that, you know, p- what can you afford? And people, they want to pay, they want to be good to their debts. Believe me, they don't, they're not trying to get over To make up the lost revenue from fines, the Salt Lake City Public Library started offering passport services. Some libraries have turned to raising money from donors or foundations. Occasionally, cities have even raised taxes to go fine-free. Fundamentally, says Bromberg, it's an investment in a community's future. When you disenfranchise kids from coming to the library, there's all this research about if, you, if kids develop a love of reading, they develop vocabulary. If they develop vocabulary, it sets them on a path to academic success, which sets them on a path to economic success. And if they don't have that, they're going to be more likely to uh, wind up on unemployment, on welfare, in low-paying jobs. They're not going to be job creators. So this is a small investment right, in, in our children and in their literacy um, that's going to have nice payoffs 18, 20 years down the road in, in building local prosperity in their own communities, right? And in building success for, you know, for them and their families. And so, you know, we, we lose out on all, on all of the, the benefits that the library has downstream when we block people from using it just because they can't afford 10 bucks. Peter Bromberg is associate director of the nonprofit Every Library. He's a consultant and former director of the Salt Lake City Public Library during the period when that library went fine-free in 2017. Mr. Bromberg, thank you so much for your time today. I cannot overstate my appreciation for having, having me here with you today. Thank you. If library fines can affect a child's future, the stakes are that much higher for fines in the justice system. And in the United States, pretty much any crime from a simple infraction to a felony is punishable with a fine, ranging from $100 to several thousand. Got that first ticket, didn't have money to pay it, and um, I got trapped in a cycle for about 15 years. What is the goal of fines for crimes? And do they work? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Fernando Martinez Jr. was 19 when he got his first ticket. It was about 300 bucks for speeding in a work zone. That would have been my whole paycheck. What were you doing for work at the time? Uh, I think I may have just started off as a, as a helper in a sheet metal shop for a roofing company. I, I thought it was just a little speeding ticket that, you know, I'd eventually get around to paying, but still never had the money. And, um... The next time I got pulled over, they told me that that ticket that went unpaid had turned into a warrant and it turned into a suspended license. It had been a while since he got that first ticket. And Martinez says he never got a notice that he was wanted for failing to pay it or that his license was suspended because of it. So when I got pulled over, I got arrested for that warrant, but I also got arrested for driving with a suspended license. And that's where everything just got worse. He spent that night in jail, got another hefty fine, and his car was impounded. This time he scrambled to pay off the ticket, but the consequences were already in motion. They told me, okay, well now part of getting caught driving with a suspended license is you're going to get another two-year suspension. (laughs) And um, yeah, once I got that two-year suspension... It just made life extremely difficult. I still had to go to work. Uh, I worked construction, so I couldn't catch a bus and take my tools and take material. And um, it was either drive and, and earn money or don't drive and don't pay any bills, don't eat, and don't, you know, don't survive. So he kept on driving. But since he had no license, he couldn't get insurance or register the car, which only made him a bigger target for traffic stops. That stood out to the police. So 
they snagged me and gave me a ticket for driving with uh, an inspired, expired sticker, gave me a ticket for driving with no insurance, and a suspended license again, and took me to jail. <laughs> and it went on like this, getting pulled over for expired tags, arrested for driving on a suspended license, a night in jail, more fines, and another two-year suspension, which was the penalty in Texas for driving on a suspended license. I got trapped in an endless cycle for about 15 years. And, um, you know, it put a strain on, on my marriage. Every morning when I left the house, my wife was nervous until I made it back. She, she was unsure if I was going to make it home that day. Um, she was unsure if we were going to collect the check at the end of the week, if I got arrested. Um, we had one vehicle. If that vehicle got impounded, well, she's there for the kids and no means of transportation. Martina says he tried to work with the judges to lessen his sentence. He hired lawyers, tried to pay off the fines as they stacked up. Out of pocket, I paid over 20 grand in court costs, attorney fees, and stuff that I couldn't get jail credit for. A lot of it, I spent so much time in jail that I was able to get some of those taken away. But after about 12 years of, of just getting slapped in the face, I decided I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm just going to drive around with a suspended license, and every time I get pulled over, I know that I'm going to go to jail. Do you think about what would have happened if you'd had an alternative way to pay for that first ticket? Like what, what could have prevented—I mean, would you have taken it? You know, like, the fact that you can trade your jail time for financial fines is interesting. Not all places allow that, but um, you were able to get some jail credit, I guess, um, to some of that. I mean, you know, would you have taken jail time in order to pay off that ticket uh, that first time oh, around? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, knowing what I've been through, I would have definitely traded a week in jail to pay off that first ticket that— that first ticket getting taken out of my way would have prevented the rest of the issues that I had to put up with. Finally, after 15 years of this, Martinez heard about a clinic run by the Texas Fair Defense Project to help people get their licenses back. They took me before a judge. They acted as my lawyer. They got my past tickets dismissed. And when it came to the open driving with a suspended license case, they set it up to where I can meet with a the prosecutor. They said, let him know the cycle that you've been going through and pray that he has mercy on you and dismisses the case. So that's what it took. It took me sharing my, my over a decade worth of being stuck in that cycle uh, and his mercy to get me out of that situation. Yeah, if he was having a bad day, he could have said, no, I'm just going to charge you, and I would, I'd still be in the same situation. And fortunately, he did dismiss it. Um, what difference has it made? Um, it opened up a bunch of opportunities that allowed me to go meet with clients and really take on side work and, and polish my skills to where I can offer a company a well-rounded employee that isn't going to get pulled over every time I drive to work um, I now have a company vehicle, which I couldn't have before. We were able to move out of a rundown mobile home and eventually get an apartment and then eventually buy a 3,000 square foot house. Life is just completely different. Fernando Martinez Jr. also became a board member for the Texas Fair Defense Project and recently shared his story with Texas lawmakers in a legislative hearing that led to a law change. The punishment for driving on a suspended license in Texas is now a three-month suspension instead of two years. Lisa Foster is another advocate working to reduce fines in the justice system. But she comes at it from a different perspective because she spent a decade as a California Superior Court judge handing down fines as punishment. Her very first sentence as a judge set her on a path toward advocacy. As she recalls, it was for driving under the influence. I'm in my office and I'm thinking about what that sentence should be and I'm carefully preparing what I'm gonna say because you have certain magic words you have to say as a judge when you sentence someone. My clerk came in with a little post-it note and on it, it said, total fines and fees. And there was a dollar amount, it was about $1,000. And then she said, 
counsel fees, public defender fees, $250. And I said, really? I have to impose all this money? And what's this public defender fee? And she said, you have to do it. Now, I watch TV like every other American. I know that you're entitled to a free lawyer in the United States. It's a constitutional right. If you can't afford counsel, one will be appointed for you. So I was sort of surprised that there was a $250 fee for your free lawyer. So I went to a colleague next door and he said to me, well, it's mandatory. There's a statute, a law that says we have to impose public defender fees, but don't worry about it. Nobody ever pays it. And I said, is that true of all the money that I'm about to impose? And he said, yeah, more or less. And I thought to myself at the time, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But she did it anyway. And she kept on imposing the mandatory fees and fines required by California state law for the decade she spent on the bench. I, like many judges, you're part of a system. So you just do what you're supposed to do. No one told me that we actually make people's lives miserable trying to collect the money that most of the people in front of me could never pay. In time, Foster started looking into the history of fines. Why are they so common in criminal justice? Historically, fines were the punishment for an offense. And they go back centuries, right? We, in the Middle Ages, fines became an alternative to incarceration, right? So either society determines that the particular offense is not so serious that we need to lock you up, but there needs to be a sanction, and that's going to be money. Or you actually could, in those days, buy your way out of jail by paying money. Today, it's often both. We are sentencing people to anywhere from six months to six years to 16 years in prison, and we are imposing a fine on top of that. So th there's a long history to fines. Fees, by contrast, are relatively recent phenomenon, and they are intended to serve a different purpose. That is, fees are really about raising revenue. And what has happened in this country over the last 40 years is that legislators and courts have turned our justice system into an ATM machine. And even though fees theoretically have a different purpose than fines, functionally, they're both just part of the same punishment, says Foster. So let me give you a good example. In California, a typical fine for speeding is $100. But that's not what you owe the state of California if you get a speeding ticket. You owe $490. Because to that $100 fine, the state of California has added $391 of additional fees. So the total punishment for speeding is $490. Now, some people may have some choice words to say about getting that ticket, but they'll pay the $490 and go on with their lives. But if you're a minimum wage worker in California, that's almost a week's take-home pay. And that's at California's $15.50 an hour minimum wage. And so to pay that ticket, you have to decide whether you're going to give up rent or food for your family, or gas for your car. So was there a—I mean, you had some cognitive dissonance going on from the very beginning about this. Like, this is weird. When did it become distasteful for you? Not until after I left the bench, I'll be honest. In 2015, Lisa Foster retired as a judge and took a job as director of the Office for Access to Justice in the U.S. Department of Justice. Even though I was part of the system, I, like most people, didn't understand how punitive, how harmful, how unfair fines and fees are until I was at the Justice Department and until Michael Brown, a young black man in Ferguson, Missouri, was shot and killed by a police officer and the Ferguson community exploded. My colleagues in the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department investigated the Ferguson Police Department. And what they uncovered was an incestuous relationship 
among the court, the city, and the police, where the mayor would email the chief of police and say, you need to up the revenue pipeline. And the police chief would tell his officers to go out and ticket more. And where the police primarily ticketed in the Black community, where they had contests to see how many citations you could issue in a single traffic stop, and where the court was sending people to jail, had created a debtor's prison in order to enforce payment. And that report, when I read it, made me ill. Because what I realized was that courts across the country, and me included, were perpetuating and exacerbating poverty, were operating debtors' prisons, were treating our most vulnerable communities in the most unfair and egregious ways. That's when I realized there was a problem. Fines and fees became the focus of her two years at the Justice Department, but she could only go so far. The federal government itself cannot tell states you can't impose fines and you can't impose fees. But the federal government has a lot of resources and it has moral authority. So Foster convened meetings on the issue and co-authored a letter that went to every state court administrator in the entire country, urging them to rethink fines and fees. But it still didn't feel like enough. When I left the Justice Department, this was the issue that kept me up at night. I kept coming back to this problem, how pervasive it is, how much it distorts our vision of what a justice system should be, and founded an organization to try to solve this problem. It's called the Fines and Fees Justice Center. And in five and a half years, we've made a lot of progress. When we started the organization, there were only six states in the country that did not suspend your driver's license for unpaid fines and fees. Today, there are 25 states that have either stopped or significantly curtailed their suspension practices. And we are planning to get to zero. (laughs) We have eliminated hundreds of fees in state and local jurisdictions all over the country. But isn't the point, the the point of, of a fine and the fees, as you've argued, kind of roll it all together, I mean, the point is to punish, right, and to deter. I mean, how do we how do we think about this idea of like you do something wrong, you should be you should be punished. So, first thing is, we actually need to examine what is illegal in this country, right? We've criminalized a lot of behavior that upon reflection, it may not be necessary to criminalize. Mm-hmm. Why, for example, should it be illegal to have mismatched curtains in your front windows, which is the case in a lot of cities in this country. Why is it a crime to spit on the street? Things that we probably need to think, like, why is that illegal anymore? That's number one. Number two is we need to think about what's the problem we're trying to solve and is a fine the best way to solve that problem? So the best example of that are unhoused people, right? What do we do when someone is sleeping on the sidewalk or in a park? We give them a citation. And what's the sanction for that, for conduct? Money. Now, the person is homeless. They don't have money. They're not gonna ever pay that citation. And what's accomplished by then arresting them and putting them in jail, not because they slept on the sidewalk, but because they don't have any money? None. You're not going to change the behavior. So maybe we should do what some cities are doing. San Francisco is a good example. For citations like that, they're requiring people to go talk to a social worker, right? Now, one visit with a social worker is probably not going to solve a person's problems, but people get repeated citations. They're unhoused. There's no other place to sleep. Maybe talking to a social worker 
multiple times, maybe not even giving them a citation. Maybe we have social workers out talking to people on a regular basis. Maybe we build affordable housing. Maybe we try to solve the problem in a more effective way because we know for sure it's not effective to do it the way we're doing it. And finally, if we're going to use money, and that may be the right solution in a lot of cases, the amount of money needs to be proportionate to a person's financial circumstances. The amount of money it may take to deter me from speeding is probably more than it would take to deter a minimum wage worker. But it's a whole lot less than it would take to deter Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk because they have a whole lot more money and even California's very high $490 ticket isn't gonna be a sufficient deterrent to that behavior. And there are places in the world that do it that way. Yeah, how does that work? Well, all over Western Europe, um, it started actually in Scandinavia in uh, the 1920s. They have what they refer to there as day fines. There are two factors that determine a fine. The seriousness of the offense and a day's wages. What do you earn in a day? And they multiply those two things together and they come up with a fine. So there have been $100,000 speeding tickets in Finland. But there are also $5 speeding tickets because they recognize that if the purpose is deterrence, then it should be a true deterrent, and that's based on your economic circumstances. So in our, in our view, as I said, what we have to do first is take a hard look at what's, what's legal and what's not. We have to think creatively about alternatives, and we always have to offer a non-monetary alternative. Like jail? No, definitely not jail. First of all, jail is the most economically inefficient way of punishing people. It costs most jurisdictions well over $100 a day to keep someone in jail. And if what we're doing, which is happens all over the country, is we're saying, okay, you go to jail, we will credit you a certain amount of money against what you owe for every day that you stay in jail. Texas does this. They will allow you to, quote, sit out your fines and fees in jail. But it costs them more money to do that. That is a totally inefficient way from an economic standpoint of punishing people because it costs much more to do that um, than you're ever, you're not going to collect anything. You're just going to pay more money. Now, most taxpayers will not think that's a good thing to do. Right? But I, I got to say, if I knew that I would not have the ability to pay my way out of a, tra- a speeding ticket, that I was going to have to go to jail if the lights went on behind me, like, that's quite a deterrent <laughs> for me. Even more than money, well, I have to say, given my, you know, as a, as, as a person of means uh, and a full-time job. Well, that would be the case. But truthfully, you're not the person who's going to get caught for speeding because that's not who's in our justice system. Black Americans and Americans of color are disproportionately in our criminal legal system. Black drivers are 20% more likely to be pulled over than white drivers. Once pulled over, they're more likely to be searched, more likely to be given a ticket, more likely to be given multiple tickets in a single stop. They're more likely to be arrested convicted, and sentenced to longer terms, all other things being equal. And because of the demographics of poverty in this country, Black people are more likely to be poor and unable to pay those fines and fees. So it's not the case that you're going to be deterred because you're not going to be stopped, candidly. You're a white woman and The neighborhood you live in may not be a neighborhood where you see a whole lot of police enforcement. But that's not the case in non-white communities in this country. That's who's in our system, and that's who's paying for government. The fees in particular, which, as we've discussed, are often much more than the fine, are funding government, not just the justice system itself, 
In California, that extra $390 goes to fund a whole host of programs from the Fish and Game Service to the Office of Emergency Management to brain injury research. Now, why does a person who gets a speeding ticket pay disproportionately for the Fish and Game Service than you or me through our taxes? That's not how we should be funding government. That's not what we're doing in the legal system today. We're taxing people through the justice system, and we are taxing the people who can afford it least. It's regressive, and it's unfair. Having a justice system, a functioning justice system, is a core government responsibility. It's supposed to serve everybody. It keeps the entire community safe. It resolves disputes fairly. It enforces everybody's rights and responsibilities. And it should be paid for by everybody out of taxes, how we pay for other government services. So we should get rid of fees and we should make fines proportionate. And offer options like payment plans, community service, or traffic school when someone simply cannot pay, says Lisa Foster. She's a former California Superior Court judge, former Department of Justice official, and now co-executive director of the Fines and Fees Justice Center. Now, it turns out there's actually a pretty big flaw in the psychology of fines. You're demanding money as payment for bad behavior. But we pay money for things all the time. And so really, says behavioral economist Yuri Genesi, A fine is a price. Basically, I go to buy bread, I pay money, I want to be late, I pay money. You change the perception of what I'm doing, and then it's only a matter of price. I need to think about cost-benefit of what I'm doing. And if you're not careful, the fine you impose to discourage something could end up doing the opposite. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Yuri Genizzi did one of the most famous experiments on how fines work. It started with a routine trip to collect his daughters from daycare in the 1990s. Today, Genizzi is a professor at UC San Diego. Back then, he was living in Israel. So uh, we used to live in a suburb of Tel Aviv at the time when our daughters went to daycare. He'd gone to lunch with his wife in the city, and they were heading back to the suburbs to get their kids. There was traffic going back. We needed to pick our daughters by 4 p.m. and we were late, so I drove like crazy because you need to pick up your girls on time. And I remember getting into the parking lot, parking our car and running to be there just in time so the principal will not be mad at us. I, I can still remember the, you know, the anxiety getting there to be there on time. That's what you need to do, right? He made it, barely. And then, not long after that stressful pickup, the daycare announced a new policy a small fine of 10 shekels, which is $3, for parents who came late more than 10 minutes. And the next time they got stuck in traffic? We didn't drive like crazy because you're not going to risk your life for that for 10 shekels or $3, right? That's, that's stupid. And when we got to the parking lot, we got out, you know, for $3, we're not going to run like crazy and we were not anxious. What was that all about, he wondered. So Genizzi and a collaborator named Aldo Rusticini decided to run an experiment. They recruited 10 local daycares, and for the first few weeks, they just kept track of how many parents showed up late for pickup. Then they introduced a $3 late fine at six of those 10 daycares. And what we found was that the parents in the daycares that were fined behaved like I did, right? So they were more likely to be late when there was a fine. Late arrivals doubled at daycares with a fine, but stayed the same at daycares without one. And, and the question is, why, did they, why were they late, right? So to test for this, we had another period after that, after the 10 weeks, in which we removed the incentives. There were no fines anymore. Genizzi figured that if the fine had encouraged parents to start showing up late, then removing the fine would get the parents arriving on time again. But no, it, it stayed the same. We chose that there was some deeper change in what we're talking about, right? So imagine before that, think about me driving like crazy. Why did I do that? Well, there was 
what economists call incomplete contract. We didn't know. We were told that we need to be there by four, but we didn't know what will happen if we don't. Maybe the principal doesn't care. She has to clean up in the range the, the daycare for tomorrow. Or maybe she's extremely upset. She's taking our girls to the back room and God knows, you know, she's pinching them, right? So we didn't know how bad it is. Now she basically told us, right? She gave us an information, a piece of information that we didn't have before. It's $3 bad. And then whether I pay it or not, I don't care. I just learned that it's not so bad to be late, right? And that can also feel, you know, maybe before that I felt bad when I came late. But now I know that it's only, it's a small, it's a minor offense. I shouldn't be too worried about it. And that changed completely the, the attitude that we had towards it. But the point that I'm trying to make is that there is a, some kind of discontinuity jump from no fine to fine. The minute there is a fine, Alder and I called our paper, a fine is a price. Basically, instead of what we call communal relationship, I have to be there. That's part of my social contract. Now it's an exchange. I go to buy bread. I pay money. I want to be late. I pay money. You change the perception of what I'm doing. And then it's only a matter of price. Right? Once you give even a small fine, you change the relationship from I have to be there because that's what a good person does to I need to be there to save money. Now, in some places in the U.S., I, I, I heard of up to $5 a minute. Now, that, that's a heavy fine. That's a lot of money, right? For $5 a minute, I'll, I'll be... Uh, the worst I heard was uh, in France, in Paris, there is a district in which if you're late to pick up your kid, the principal takes your kids to the uh, local police station and you have to pick them up from there, Right. Imagine how much it's going to cost you in therapy later on or just telling your spouse that, oh, honey, today I had to pick up our daughter from the police station, right? The more it's going to cost you, the less likely you're going to do it. So the size of the fine really matters. But Ganesi says there's a limit on either end. You make the late fine too large and people will just find a different daycare. Make it too small and you're sending the message that being late is no big deal. But finding that sweet spot is really tricky, especially when you want to maintain a good relationship with the people doing the behavior. Like schools trying to get parents to stop taking their kids on vacation outside of the designated school breaks. So I remember that very well when we had kids, right? You always, you're bound to the school vacations, right? So you have to go during spring break or winter break, wherever. And then it's much more crowded, it costs much more, it's harder to find a place to stay. It's all worse than regular days, right? Those are the worst time to travel. So it turns out that in the UK, they had this problem that parents took their kids, you know, a week before or a week after, say, spring break to, to Italy, right? And they didn't like it. Why did the parents do it? do it for what we said? You know, it's uh, easier to find uh, places, it's cheaper, it's uh, less crowded, right? So it's good. So the school decided to give, if I remember correctly, a fine of 60 pounds if you took your kid out of, uh, out of school, not during spring break, but before or after. And then what they saw is exactly like in the daycare story that there was a big jump in parents, right? That, that did it, right? You can save much more than 60 pounds by going off break. And your experience is much nicer. And you don't feel that you did something that bad because you're paying for it, right? It's a commodity now. I don't feel bad when I go and buy milk in the store. Now I'm buying, you know, the right to do something. Again, a fine is a price, right? You put a price on it, you change it. Before that, it was, look, you know, it's not, you, you don't do it. The teachers ask you not to do it, talked with you, don't do it again. Now they're telling you it's 60 pounds. Well, 60 pounds, I'm going to save 500 pounds and going to have a better vacation, you know, that's, that's a good deal. And that is what fines always are. A deal. An exchange. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what it's worth to me. And here's what I think it'll take to get you to do it. Which, when you get right down to it, is exactly how rewards work, too. That's a key insight that fuels Ganesi's work. Fines and rewards are different sides of the same coin. Their incentives. And as Ganesi describes in his new book called Mixed Signals, there are a lot of ways for incentives to backfire. So here's, a, here's an interesting uh, experiment, big experiments that were done nationwide and actually worldwide. So plastic bags, the, the small plastic bags when you go to, to the store. I don't know about uh, where you live in California now, it costs 10 cents if you buy it. 
they also played with giving you 10 cents if you don't. If you don't use a plastic bag in the, when you go out of the supermarket, if you don't get one, they tried giving you 10 cents for not doing it. And for some reason, the reward didn't work in this case. And the 10 cents price that they put on it actually works a lot. You look at the, at the outcome, it's huge. Now, why is it huge? I can pay 10 cents. It's not really about that, but it's a signal that I shouldn't use that many bags. The government is signaling to you, look, this is bad, stop doing this. Don't use plastic bags, right? So it's kind of a signal that, that you get. Oh, oh, and if you're, if you're offering to pay me 10 cents, then it feels like this is kind of a nice thing that you could do. Whereas if you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna charge you 10 cents, then it feels a little bit more like uh, this, is, this is the thing that's expected, not just some like extra bonus thing I could do. Exactly, you know, the government doesn't impose these kind of things that you have to pay for, for plastic bags unless it's really important for the environment, yeah. right? So you get signals that it's really important. So are there other kinds of things that we would not want to try to reward people for because that might discourage them from doing the very thing we wanted them to do in terms of, like, for the greater good? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, think about blood donation, right? So I, I donate blood from time to time. You go downtown over here. And so sp spend half a day. Someone is, you know, someone sticks a needle in, into you. It's not that pleasant. And that's actually great, right? Because I, I feel that I've done something good for society. It makes me feel good. I call it self-signaling in the book. I get a self-signal that I'm a good person. So that's great. That's a good feeling. I might even tell my friend, look, sorry, I wasn't in the morning meeting. I just donated blood. You know, I'll show off, right? That's, uh, that's good. I imagine that someone would pay me $50 for donating blood. Now I'll have a very different calculation. I'll say, well, I... They have to drive downtown, spend half a day. It's painful. You know what? Fifty dollars is not worth it, and I can't brag about it later because people will look at me as a cheap person, right? So that's really that kind of uh, incentive would actually crowd out behavior. Now imagine that instead of that, the blood bank would give me a coffee mug with the blood bank logo on it. That's actually great because every morning when I'll zip my coffee, I can say, "Oh, oh you're a great guy. You donated blood, right?" So this makes the self-signaling even stronger. And I can take it to the meeting, put it on the table, and I don't have to tell my friends that, that I donated blood. They can see on my coffee mug, right? So that's an example where money could be really bad, but the, the coffee mug is not. And there are many examples of um, the difference between money and not money. Imagine that your friend asks you to help him uh, move a sofa. You go, you help him, and then he takes out $10 and pays you. That would be really awkward, right? Because it basically he will tell you, look, I'm, you're not my friend. I just hired you. You are hired work. If he would buy you a beer that cost $5, that's fine, right? Uh, you are late to dinner. You were supposed to bring a bottle of red wine. You couldn't make it, but you, you go in and say, sorry, I didn't bring the wine, but here's $50. That's weird, right? Paying your mother-in-law for dinner, you know, Friday dinner. That's also weird, right? There are things that we don't use money for. So do you think that fines are generally effective when it comes to criminal behavior, you know, or like really dangerous behavior? A lot of crimes come with the, the risk of jail time and also a fine um, in the U.S. criminal justice system. What do you think about that approach? Right. I think that to some degree it is, right? So if you think about someone that wants to do a minor, you know, break into a house and they know that there is a higher probability that they'll be caught, that's probably true. When you talk about uh, crimes that come out of addiction, when you talk about people murdering someone, I don't think that deterrence actually works, right? Our, we're talking about mental state, about mental illness in many cases, addiction. Those are things that really disturb the kind of calculation that we talked about with parents in the daycare. So I don't think that what we learned with the daycare is a, you can apply to a spouse that, you know, attacks their spouse, right? Someone that attacks mm -hmm. their spouse. Because there's other, there's, there are other drivers involved there. It's not a purely, you know, there's no point at which we hope, at least, that right. someone is making the calculation right. like this is a, you know, this is a 10-year, $500 offense that I'm going to commit. Exactly, exactly. I, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that with other things, DUI, yes. So 
um, talking in disabled person. How about like littering or helmets or like talking on your cell phone when you're driving, those kinds of oh, things? Oh, those, I think over there, it's extremely effective. If defined, so talking about, you know, talking on your cell phone while driving, the higher the fine, the higher the chance that you'll be caught. And that's better. And it's better because you're less likely to do it because you'll be afraid of being caught and because you understand that it's really bad. So think about cigarettes in the U.S., right? So in the 1970s, early 70s, the government decided that smoking is bad for you. And they started the fight against smoking. But I'm old enough to remember, for example, flying in a plane. I was young and poor. I was on the one of the, you know, the back seats. And people would come from business, sit on my laps more or less, smoke a cigarette, use me as an ashtray and go back, right? So things that we can't imagine today, smoking in airplanes, right? That's that's really ridiculous. But one step at a time. So you can't smoke in airplanes. You cannot smoke in bars. You cannot, you need to go out of the building, putting these pictures on the cigarette packs. Each one of them is a small step, not necessarily all of them effective, but together they were extremely ex- effective. It reduces smoking, reduced smoking from you know, definitely more than half of the population to very few percent that are smoking today. Because they made the act of smoking more costly in terms of your time, where you had to go, and limited where you could be while you were smoking. Absolutely. And they also signaled, look, this is really bad. We are not doing it for other stuff, but this is really bad, right? So smoking is really, really bad for you. Otherwise, we wouldn't take your freedom to do all these things that you like, right? And it took, you know, quite a long time, but eventually it worked. Yuri Ganesi is a behavioral economist and a professor in the Rady School of Management at the University of California, San Diego. His new book is called Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. As I mentioned at the start of today, this episode was inspired by a comment from one of our listeners. And we love that. We are eager to hear your thoughts about topics we're tackling on the podcast and what else you'd like us to be digging into. So let us know what is top of mind for you lately. It might become an episode. Reach out to us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod on all the platforms. Or send us an email. That address is topofmind at byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio production. This episode was produced by Samuel Benson, Amber Mortensen, Vanessa Goodman, and Elena Beck, with help from James Hoops and me. Our sound designers are Spencer Hewitt and Kelsey Ney. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. 